0: Welcome to the Community Development Podcast. A podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. on in the coronavirus lockdown, certainly early on in the UK. I put a play out on various social media platforms encouraging and inviting people to get in touch to share with me the the early initial reactions reflections responses to the coronavirus hitting communities and i'm extremely grateful for the people who responded for some it was perhaps a little bit too soon for others they'd been directly impacted by the virus themselves or their families and so clearly the time wasn't appropriate for them but as i said a few people have got in touch and so what we've got with this first episode that's dedicated specifically to coronavirus and community development responses and approaches to tackling it are two contrasting scales So firstly, we visit the Maesgirchen Estate near Bangor in North Wales, where there's some really heartwarming reflections on people involved in the grassroots there, a community that's notionally, usually so-called disadvantaged, but how they've been demonstrating a real community response and almost a, a resilience to coronavirus and the lockdown and the economic impact it's had, as well as the social impact Uh, And some great insights into how that has happened and how people have forged sort of alliances and collaborated with very little planning. They've just sort of cracked on and done it. And then we cross the Atlantic and we head to Winnipeg in Canada, specifically Manitoba where Michael Barkman joins us to share some of his reflections where he is operating on a much more strategic kind of policy perspective, where he has a much closer role to community economic development and social forms of enterprise, and where he hasn't lost sight of the fact that the state and the state apparatus still requires challenge. It still requires us to tell truths of power uh, michael doesn't have boots on the ground in the same extent that people in my do he nonetheless shares some examples some really again excellent examples of how resilience does exist in these communities so i hope you like it please if there's anyone listening to this who'd like to get in touch to share some of their reflections some of their practices some of uh, the challenges that they've encountered during this last few weeks then again please get in touch dms on twitter are open or uh, get in touch by the website and lastly, there's a Patreon page if people are interested in supporting the podcast and what we're trying to do by connecting that workforce, sharing the learning, sharing the benefits and the positive aspects of uh, community development approaches. And please just search on Patreon for the CD podcast and uh, all the details are there. Thank you.
1: I'm uh, Dylan Fern, I'm the local county councillor on the estate. So I also work as a, in construction and of course I um, stopped work as soon as this thing kicked off really and I'm now... As a self-employed person, I'm basically in that sort of limbo area where I have to sort of, well, I've got to make a judgment at some point or other, I've got to go back to work. But at the moment, seem to be doing uh, more work here on the estate, (laughs) which is no bad thing.
2: Well, my name's James Deakin. I'm the project lead for a registered charity called uh, North Wales Recovery Communities. We provide abstinence-based housing and therapeutic day programmes for individuals in recovery from long-term addiction, substance misuse. We're sort of nestled sort of uh, up against the local estate, G uh, Since this is sort of kicked off, one of the big things for us is as sort of ex-addicts, alcoholics, we've taken a massive amount out of the community in our time. Uh, and one of the things that we smoke for people to sort of, a, almost like a path, way to wellness is serviced to, to the wider community so when this sort of came up it was just something that we knew that we needed to be involved in and, and sounds a bit selfish really but we knew it'd be good for our guys to sort of give something back really
1: yeah i gotta say like james said uh, we're very fortunate that they are based here to be honest because um it's been a really really important part of uh, the help that um people have got on the estate you know the fact that James and uh, his uh, organisation have got the facilities and the wherewithal and, more importantly, the, uh, the knowledge and the spirit to do to know what's, what to do straight away. I mean, I think it was almost natural what we did, wasn't it, James, I would say?
2: Yeah, I think that's one thing that we've been sort of quite lucky with, the connections were there already, weren't they, between us and, and kind of all on a similar page, really, that, you know, that we just knew that there was going to be uh, people in need, regardless of the circumstances and, and sort of no judgment from any of us, really, attached to anybody, you know, what, what the situation were. it was just a case of sort of needing to get in there and fill that gap straight away, so, yeah a bit awkward for us the first couple of days because it kind of, it was Jess that sort of sparked this for us because normally our, all our sort of money and finances are all targeted towards individuals in recovery. So Jess had approached us on the first day sort of basically saying there was individuals in need, but there were still guys that were actively using it. It was like, mm, well, we, we can't afford to fund that sort of stuff really. But then we sort of went away and we looked at it and we just thought, you know what, it's time for normal rules and what have you, goes out the window. And Correct. We kind of recognised quite quickly that... Treatment services, especially, were going to just basically grind to a halt, and and if we didn't step in and sort of fill that void, that um, you know there was going to be people in sort of dire need that weren't able to sort of isolate or shield safely. So it just all happened very sort of organically, very quickly. But I, I think the. Like I say, the individuals and the connections between us all, they were already established. And I think that's allowed us to be able to sort of pick the pace up so quick from, so I think it was like 20 meals first day we did. So I think we've got something like 70 now, just under, that we were sort of feeding every other day. It's growing and growing. But like I say, I we could hit the ground running with it, really. You know, there's an ethos, there's the, that, that those could already, were already in place. And
0: you're just able to, to crack on with things. There's none of that trying to form partnerships, get to know each other, that the work that you've done previously together just allows us to mobilise.
1: James is absolutely spang on the money. I think we have just just haven't really taken any notice of tape and stuff. The luckiest thing is, is because of the estate's a deprived area anyway, we've got a strong community group or you know, organisation here, and MySNE is obviously part of that. So we were already had the framework for helping people anyway, despite before this pandemic hit
3: all, all it is it's
1: given us more of a focus really to do to do stuff and as James says it's 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 more to do with um, the immediate needs that are that popping up and within a week well within a day James had sourced a load of money within a week we'd provided electric food and whatever needs to uh, uh, to anybody that wanted it on the estate
2: yeah yeah basically it's sort of in a nutshell really but I sort i of say we as a, as a voluntary sort of group or organization we've been involved with in a local community group on my street for a number of years really again just with this idea to try to put something back into the community and again i think it's been really sort of helpful sort of having a no for jesse she probably sort of feels kind of a bit not left out but because she with her own issues she's having to sort of shield but it's been good having somebody sort of at you know on a coordination level just pick up the requests and get them sort of filtered down to myself and Dylan and you know we're actually going out and getting that leg work done as well so
1: Jess has been a brilliant coordinator I know she's as James says, she's almost like not the fat controller, but the slim controller, way up in the hills. But she's been the overall coordinator, and as James says, others have been just sort of responding to her, to to what she's, you know, she's saying, can you do this? Can we do that? And, and between us, it's it's worked really well up to now. And I, you know, I can't for for this area, it's been great, and not just chess. I mean, there's been Pete as well, who's was another community worker who works on environmental. Sorry. He also is isolating for his own needs. And he's also been doing stuff on, on that side because he was very involved previously with um, environmental groups. And, all, of course, everything had to stop uh, immediately, you know, what they were doing. But they've been carried on in a, at arm's length and we've been able to deliver loads of uh, plants and flowers to people to, to for, stuff, for them to, you know, enhance their lives in their gardens and stuff and in their flats.
0: We'd have the choice not to engage. And that's their that's their right, I suppose. It's interesting, that you talk, it's interesting that you're talking about basic needs initially, so food, shelter, yeah, I think utilities, bills, etc. You talked about because I can imagine as well, you know, now as they, you know, the the more into lockdown we go, the, the financial pressure probably begins to bite a little bit more, and and certainly for the people at the lower end of the economic and, and income spectrum, you know, that might be bite you know bite sooner and that bite might be might be stronger. But looks like if I'm if I'm interpreting you right, Dylan, it's beginning to move beyond some of those essential needs. If you're talking about things like plants and, and, and things like that, garden.
1: You could say they're not essential, but um, it's things like that. Uh, you know, you just tell by the reaction. It's raised everybody's morale on the estate. So people feel that, you know, there's humanity there. And I mean, you know, that's the most important thing is anybody who's left out, obviously, is going to be doubly bad that. Obviously, we're going to not going to get everything because certainly, you know, the help is there. As, as James says, punched posters up, through all the all around the estate with the phone number on. And I think, I don't think anyone can say that they, they're not aware of it. And everybody's pitching in and doing what they can. And it's it's, it's really, really hard. You're seeing the best of humanity, to be honest.
2: What happens next, James? I think we've just got to keep going for the time being the way that we are. I mean, obviously the situation is very fluid and things are changing, but on a daily basis. But, I think a lot of the people that we're picking up now or, or that we're sort of providing food for, especially some of the more elderly in the community, um, we're going to be having to commit to them for the sort of long term, really. To be honest with you, I don't really see our role at Penning House uh, changing much more from sort of what we're doing at the moment in terms of provision of food and sort of financial support for basic sort of necessities and stuff like that, really. Obviously, as, as things progress in the lockdown, either you know, if it does ease. I think one of the things that we'll be looking at, I think, longer term is, you know, have we almost sort of created a dependency to a certain extent and, and how what will you know, it'll be a, a prolonged process. We won't just, as soon as the lockdown ends, we won't just say, right, that's it, you know, everyone has to fend for themselves now. Um, it's going to have to be done on a sort of phase basis, really. Um, but I think also as well, I think some of the work that we've done here, I, I think can sort of um, continue to support the community longer term, hopefully in, in more positive times as well, really. I think... It's unified a lot of people and I think it's kind of brought the community closer. I think as hardship always does, really.
0: So, James, by way of advice, what would you say to anybody listening to this in a similar
2: position to yours? Try and avoid that sort of middle management red tape and, and nonsense and just get to the people who actually know the community, know the, the issues, know the people that are there and just get those needs met as quickly as possible, really. I, I think, again, that's been one of the things that's been quite refreshing about it. There's been no sort of... Uh, no middle management nonsense or anything like that. It's just been with a group of doers as opposed to talkers, really. And again, that makes things work better. Gents, I'm really grateful for your time. Keep on doing what you're doing. Best of luck to
0: yourselves. and Stay safe. The Thank you. So after speaking to Dylan and James, I had the opportunity to speak to the Jess, who is referred to a couple of times by both James and Dylan. Uh, Jess Sylvester, she joined me via the internet from her home um, where she's juggling parenting and sort of self-isolation as well, but also trying to provide that coordinating role that we heard about.
3: Uh, so yeah, my name's um, Jess Sylvester and I work for a group called me which is MySgerchen's Invest Local group. So Invest Local is a programme across Wales, across 13 communities in Wales, um, and it's a million pounds for each of the regions to decide how they want to spend it on local priorities. And so MySME is the steering group in MySkerchen and they've made the decisions about how to spend the million pounds on local priorities. Um, And in MySkerchen, the vast majority is allocated towards a community hub and then um, redeveloping the play park and the rest of it's all on community engagement activities, anything else that anybody wants to do to bring the community together. As part of that, they've decided to employ me as a community development worker and Pete Gardner as an environmental project worker. I'm employed through the local CVC, Mantell and I've been working there for 18 months now. Um, and we started a number of different projects, including a, a community cafe every Tuesday night. And I think it was just before lockdown, we decided as a group, so everybody who comes to the cafe and the volunteers who normally cook and help out there, We decided to run the cafe that evening. Um, Quite a few of the volunteers who work there work in the care sector as well. And straight away, I mean, Beth and Denise, who cook there really regularly, just got to it and said they wanted to cook for over 70s. They'd already knocked on everybody's doors to see if they wanted a, a meal every Tuesday evening and compiled a list of I think well it's up to 84 people a week now and so they moved all of the kitchen equipment which had been in the church would been using the church as a base and moved it to an empty office down the way and set all of that up and I think that was all ready to go before lockdown was even announced, really. And then during that first week, we just kind of forgot about all of the other priorities and it was it was really clear what needed to happen. There were already people um, self-isolating here on zero-hours contracts who just had lost their income then for that two-week period and they weren't able to go into work or, you know, they, they knew somebody with symptoms and they themselves needed to isolate. It felt like it all kicked off quite quickly compared to what we were hearing in the media and uh, kind of daily government announcements. Penrin House, the recovery centre, absolutely brilliant. So I think it was in the first week and um, we had 25 to 30 volunteers signed up already to help out with things like prescriptions and doing shopping for people who were self-isolating. And within the first week we found that we were sending people around to people's houses who weren't able to pay for the electricity because circumstances have just changed so drastically. Well they'd been supported you know, by a neighbour who had lost their work or was having to self-isolate on a zero-hours contract without sick pay and so on. It became about having some kind of a a crash fund where we could sort out immediate needs like that, and it was very much a crisis response. So we're, we're kind of looking at doing that slightly differently now, but it was about, you can refer, you can say, I'm stuck, I need this, I need some nappies, I need some baby formula, whatever it was, and somebody would go around and sort it out. So it, Initially, James crowdfunded the crash fund, and I think by the end of the first evening, he had £3,500 in there, and it's now fairly well stocked. And I think it's close to £6,000 has gone out over the last six weeks. It's been really, really valuable. It's about a five-week universal credit wait. People didn't have any kind of financial barrier or savings necessarily to cover that. It all came as a bit of a surprise, uh, waiting for furlough, and it's been... Yeah, food, electricity and so on, just immediate needs. Um, They also started, so Dolan Fernley, the councillor, started picking up all the fair share um, surplus donations from the supermarkets. That was something we sorted out quite early on and distributing it in bags to anybody who needed food and was struggling with that. You know, as things evolved, by the end of the week, Penman House were cooking up a lot of the fair share donations. Anything that wasn't coming out of bags and boxes or from another food bank in Bangor as well started to feed into it via Dolan then they would just cook up all these meals and deliver them. And I think it's something staggering, like over 900 meals have gone out now.
0: Wow, it's a really impressive effort. And I think it busts open that myth that these disadvantaged communities, in inverted commas, lack resilience because, like you said, that the response and, and what appears to be a fairly organic response happened quite quickly. And as you say, in contrast to perhaps what the media were portraying,
3: Yes, we kind of saw it in lots of different ways. You know, it's, it's down to the nice things like, you know, there's a few streets who play bingo once a week and there's, there's all sorts of other things going on as well. But people, are, they look after each other. It's a really close-knit, caring community anyway. You know, it's the financial resilience that just went, but that kind, that interconnected community and the strength of that really shone through. And it, it really was very, very organic. People just stood up and said, this is what I can do. This is what I can offer. How do we do this best together? Um, and it just worked. It was very, very impressive. It's a privilege
0: to, to give that a platform, I suppose, via this. Last question, Jess. Is... Dylan referred to you as, as sort of a coordinator or a controller of, of some of the communication and, and things like that, but doing it from a position of isolation yourself. To what extent are you able to, or maybe are you alert to, but waiting the, t- the right time to be able to collate some of this learning? Because we talk about community development has to have learning at, the, at its heart. We need to be challenging inequalities, You know, looking at inequalities of power and, and, and so on. But of course, if the focus is on the here and now and the very essential, that can perhaps be parked for a period of time. But I don't suppose it can necessarily be parked for a lengthy period of time. Or if it can, by some people, are some people needing to kind of be alert to it? And is that you, for example? So sorry, there's a few questions there. But what about the other bits of community development?
3: Yeah, so I'd say that for the first few weeks, that was very, very much parked. And then it's as we started to see kind of emerging themes. And I think, For me being tapped into building communities trust and having these weekly, initially it was weekly and now it's every fortnight, and Zoom meetings between all the different Invest Local area workers, being able to talk to our Invest Local officer. The Invest Local have been brilliant at listening and saying, you know, okay, so you're seeing these cracks, keep sending them to us, keep talking to us about them, what are the themes that are developing? And from the other side, I think it was really useful to be employed through our CBC so again we'd have weekly Zoom meetings where I could sort of say you know the homeless hostel um, just closed their gates without telling anybody and we've picked that up who's supposed to be responsible what what happens there and again that's on a very immediate needs basis and as it's developed I think we've started just collating bits of stories snippets of what's going wrong for people what's changed for people why they're needing help now There's a few really clear themes coming out. Zero hours contracts and the fragility of that to not just the individual, but entire families who are interdependent Mm. um, financially or, you know, supported a little bit by a neighbour. So one person goes down and then there's somebody else who also needs help from that. I think one of the things that's really crystallised is that for a community that's kind of labelled as poor, it's very, very much a money issue. Um, the resilience in terms of people in terms of communities is is there already Um, but it is money and people were so close to that line of being able to make ends meet already that it it hasn't taken that much of a shock for some people the media were talking about uh, people in universal credit aren't going to see any change well actually the increase in food prices having kids home all day and the bills going up because of that that kind of thing really tipped the balance for some people that hasn't been talked about and that's something that we do need to start talking about and we do need to start looking at who's being infected and how and at what level the response needs to be you know we're we're a crisis response as it stands we weren't doing food banks and things initially and the food banks locally you know there's a complex referral system and so on and people weren't able to get through the referrals because it was done by you know maybe the cab officer or the flying start worker and they're now working from home and it just took a few weeks to get all of that stuff Sorted, you know that you no longer do need a food bank referral form, and the volunteers have come back for the food bank. You know that a lot of them were elderly or had self isolate immediately. So there's a, a fairly fragile support system in place already. so is a helicopter going overhead? <laughs> you can hear. That. I hadn't realised
0: that you'd upscaled meal deliveries by such a margin. It's, it's very impressive that you've commissioned your own, your own dropper.
3: There is a responsibility to do something with it. And it's not immediately clear to me yeah. what to do with that at the level that we're at. But I think being part of something like building communities trust is really, really useful. Um, and, we, and people are listening and the council is listening. The council, our local authority, has asked us, you know, please feed this back. That's a fairly a new relationship to have that kind of clear, open channel. You know, I think people are keen to learn from this and... In some instances, it's that the cracks were already there, but they mm. are now wider and more visible. Who's responsible for that? Where do we go? What do we do with that?
0: I think the knitting together of stories is is a potentially powerful way of doing that. I suppose it's a question of, you know, how long will that take? To what extent can we enable people to articulate their own voices, to tell their own stories? I've recorded another podcast this morning around social prescribing. And again, stories is, is, is part of that broader canvas, then, if you like. I think there still remains a role, uh, as there always has done, perhaps more acutely now for people like yourself, the community workers who have got, if not boots on the ground, they're they're listening. Because obviously with isolating and shielding, then people may not be able to be present with those boots on the ground. But they're certainly listening and they're attentive to what other people are saying. And I think it is incumbent on people in those roles to to do what they can to get that, to get those stories out, to get that information out. I'm really grateful for your time and keep on doing what you're doing. Um, It would be great to maybe keep in touch. And maybe, you know, cast a light on what you do and what Maeskne does in the Maiskirchen area in more normal times rather than in crisis. Uh, I don't imagine 18 months ago before you started the job, you had a question in the interview around what experience do you have of pandemics?
3: No. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. No, I mean, I think a lot of what we were already trying to do was, yes, to ask people to listen. And it was always been a bit frustrating that people would be willing to listen to me because I'm a paid worker in that role, where there are plenty of people who would have liked to have spoken and be listened to before. And now all of a sudden, everything's fast forwarded. And the same with, you know, the invest local ethos is very much that it's not being done too, it's doing for yourselves but there's you know maybe a process of doing with i am largely redundant in all of this now yes we supported a little bit at the beginning and now there's no need and i would see that as if i do myself out of a job that's that's great
4: so i'm michael barkman uh and i uh, am from winnipeg manitoba canada which is right in the center of our big northern nation And I work for a national network called the Canadian Community Economic Development Network, which is two decades old. And it's a network of people and organizations who are committed to and doing community economic development work in our country. Something that, especially talking with folks potentially listening from all over, that's really important always to start. Uh, In Canada, we do, and especially here in Winnipeg land acknowledgements at uh, the beginning of a lot of events or meetings uh, to acknowledge the indigenous territory that uh, our work and our lives uh, are occurring upon. So I thought I maybe could do that first. So I'm based in uh, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota and Dene nations, which are all indigenous groups that are still thriving and existing uh, here on this land. Uh, And also the Métis territory nation, which is a nation that grew out of um, indigenous and European settlers and also Treaty One territory. So in some parts of Canada, there are signed treaties between uh, Canada and indigenous nations and in others there aren't. Um, And yeah, that's something that we do as sort of practice uh, now throughout the country in a spirit towards reconciliation and and decolonization. Uh, But the history of colonialism in Canada is still really present and really strong. It makes itself known on the street. It's in the faces of people who are homeless and who are uh, clearly more socioeconomically disadvantaged. Uh, and during times of crisis like COVID-19, it really rears its ugly head uh, in terms of who's most impacted in really acute ways from things like a health crisis or the climate change crisis or other things that are going on. And then tying it to our work across the country, which is that uh, it's I think the tradition that we have in many ways is really uh, indigenous led. Um, community development in uh, in my network in my organization uh, originates from something called the Nietzsche principles. Nietzsche is uh, is a word uh, that's uh, coming from uh, indigenous languages here. Yeah, it's a sort of principles at, at the heart, there's eleven of them, but at the heart of them, it's about where they're at leading their own uh, economic, social, and environmental, uh lives development so the work that we do is in many ways really indigenous led both by the people and and ideas so that's a national network so there's social enterprises which in canada are defined as sort of uh, money-making enterprises that contribute to social economic or environmental goals and in manitoba we have many of those and we also have uh, neighborhood Uh, renewal corporations uh, of which there are 13 that are sort of like anchor institutions in their own communities who do community economic development work from housing to community beautification and throughout all of that uh, especially here in the city of Winnipeg where I live which uh, has between 10 and 20 percent of our population is indigenous yeah is a really important aspect of that. Again, I think it's important to acknowledge sort of the history of colonialism and what our community economic development model does in being Indigenous-led and responding to that. It's a privilege, Michael, to
0: be able to to give that a platform. You you touched on the crisis. It's probably dominating a lot of people's lives, a lot of people's work, Mm -hmm. certainly and they're pondering. How are things looking in in, in Manitoba, your bit of Canada?
4: Canada's huge, uh, and our provinces, which there are 10 provinces, and three are all very large. Um, Some in the East has been really uh, different depending on where you go. And in large cities like Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, the rates are really high. And in places like Winnipeg where I am in the center of the country and we're kind of like six to eight hours away from some other centers of similar or larger size. So in many ways really on our own. There's of course lots of small uh, towns and rural communities here uh, in the prairies. Yeah, we're very isolated in terms of being a larger center. Um, So our cases are actually quite a bit lower, but the economic and social impact of COVID, I think, has been very strong here and very strong across the country and, of course, the world. So I think what we're seeing, not necessarily the same stories of huge health challenges, and it looks like our health system is really ready to take that on, but definitely some of the the economic and social challenges. And uh, like I said before, this is happening across the world that... uh, you know, the line of sort of going around, that the disease can impact uh, everybody. It doesn't really differentiate uh, between rich and poor is true in terms of the health impacts, but the social and economic impacts, uh, it's not true. You know, and I just walk around our city and have pecked around to try and get, get outside and get fresh air. It's so obvious just um, seeing the the wealth discrepancy and then how people are, are living from large mansions in traditionally places where sort of Colonizers lived initially, and now mostly uh, white white people live to spaces that are much more indigenous uh, and racialized communities in our city that uh, have a lot of people who are low income. To the places where people are waiting in line for food banks um, and practicing social distancing in those sort of scenarios, while people have so many other immediate needs, is is really hard. Yeah. But there are beautiful stories of how. Communities are responding, Uh, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic. I guess in our in our world, and uh, sort of in our community development world here, is it's been longstanding. Is um, at what scale does the community respond, and at what scale do we need state or sort of government response? And I think in the past we've tried to settle on sort of a balance that things like healthcare and education uh, are really important that they're they're run and operated by the state, but in Lots of other instances, community entities and community-owned entities, uh, and that idea of ownership is really important, that it's not necessarily government-led or government-owned, but it's community-owned and uh, government-funded in lots of ways. Um, So a lot of those sort of groups that are really democratically uh, running what their operations are and really responsive and and in touch with the communities that they're in, they're doing some amazing stuff. There's probably seen this across the world, but... People who provide services to women or, or non-binary or trans folks who are seeing an increase in domestic violence because of, the, because of isolation are providing these amazing services at a socially distanced and safe way to make sure that women uh, have somewhere safe to go and are getting the food and, and care and shower and, and health services that they need. There's another great collaboration that I love between a local social enterprise that's called The Cutting Edge. It's a sewing social enterprise, and it was thinking that it might have to close. It hires and employs a number of newcomer women to Winnipeg. And then instead, they pivoted and shifted to start creating masks um, yeah. and then got some promotion through another Enterprise local investment towards employment, and they're selling the masks out of a local hardware co-op that was also struggling financially. And I've seen all three of their businesses go up. So I just love that collaboration between social enterprises, co-ops, and nonprofits uh, who are seeing what the need is, and then still able to employ people at a time when employment's really hard. So there's lots of stories like that. And
0: you talked a little bit of focus on community enterprise then, and, and social forms of enterprise. That particular example suggests to me that there's a resilience that can be found fairly intuitively, fairly autonomously by those enterprises themselves, whereas perhaps the usual narrative can sometimes be that these sorts of disadvantaged communities would be another sort of proxy for this. They lack resilience, whereas that suggests to me that there mm-hmm. is more than they're usually given credit for.
4: I totally agree and I think yeah resilience is a really good word to describe it and you know also we've talked about an asset-based approach and there are such strong assets in these communities that have been historically economically and socially disadvantaged um, in terms of like where we're seeing mutual aid outside of sort of maybe organizations or nonprofits that exist in a incorporated sort of way just community members coming together really organically to support each other and and that's happening really strongly in some of these communities in a different way I think than places where people are holed up in their very large homes and maybe only going out to a large big box grocery store and that's their only occasion to leave the house but instead in some of these communities they're supporting the local shop and supporting each other in a in a different way although that's uh maybe a generalization and there's definitely people in lots of communities who are who are resilient and who are making this through this and struggling in their own way. But you're right, absolutely, that uh, some of these communities get stereotyped as, as having so many issues and problems and challenges that need to be dealt with by people from outside the community. Um, and I think this crisis is proving that uh, communities are really smart and they know what they're doing and there's a lot of knowledge and, mm-hmm. and good ideas and, and strength there and, and resilience. In Manitoba, in our province here, we have a a provincial or regional government that's very conservative and has been in power for about four years with a strong austerity agenda. And they inherited a government that was much more left-leaning, that was in power for about 20 years and have been really focused on paying down a deficit. And we're seeing that so strongly in this crisis right now that the focus is to not uh, increase our deficit, when uh, they're doing things like suggesting cuts to these nonprofit and community organizations that they fund, among many other things, like potentially cutting universities and and K twelve education, where our federal government has really stepped in to support people and communities in a different way. So resilience, even when people are facing cuts, but. Uh, they remain strong and they commit to their work and supporting the people that they're with, while the the government here is mm. interested in in cutting back.
0: So, to what extent is it your role individually or you know collectively, from the corporation's point of view, be a, a, a challenge to, to that at a much more strategic level? Because we heard from the contributors to this episode a bit earlier, Mays Gherkin in, in Bangor in, in North Wales, how very much a response to the here and now the pressing essential needs, that bottom uh, sort of tiers of some sort of Maslow's hierarchy. We can do the strategic planning another time. That can be parked. To what extent might it be the role of somebody operating at your scale to not lose sight of of that?
4: I'm really kind of privileged and lucky to be in the role that I am. So I do, my job is focused on public policy and community organizing and community advocacy within the our network so the canadian community economic development network so i haven't been doing some of the the front line work that our members are in in ensuring people get the food that they need that day or ensuring indigenous communities get sort of the the immediate needs that they need or or supporting each other and so yeah i feel a lot of privilege to be able to be in the role that i'm in but also a lot of responsibility Uh, so we have a strong sort of democratic mandate from the member organizations, whether they're social enterprises or community organizations or nonprofits who have really given us a a strong policy mandate to say to the government, look like now at the time for cuts and austerity, nor is it ever now is the time to make sure that these groups doing essential work have the finances and resources they need to continue to do community-led development work. So my job has been a lot of organizing direct advocacy City government, organizing social media, not being able to gather, uh, right? Amazing and positive stories of the resilience of communities are getting out there in the public.
0: I suppose there's a danger that there's almost space kind of carved out as everybody's focused on a very maybe hyper-local. And and certainly where I live and and networks I'm involved in, they feel a lot more localized. I can't remember the last time I went into the, the city center of Cardiff and I probably live about three miles away from it. And that connection to the hyperlocal and, of course, communities of of interest and and shared characteristics as as well need not be particularly local in the geographical sense. But there's a danger, I worry, that certain spaces are being vacated, whether that's around policy, whether that's around about challenging the state, whether it's around about focusing on inequalities, because there's this renewed emphasis on people's basic uh, essential needs at some point when... That is, I don't know, and it will be different in different areas. We might need to reclaim that space. If, if we work hard from a community development perspective to, you know, get a place around the table, so to speak, there's a danger that when that table reconvenes, we can be overlooked. We can be forgotten. Then we've got to almost fight for that place all over again. And that, that would be my worry.
4: That I think is a, a real concern. And yes, sort of seeing, um, I don't know, interesting conversations around... Sort of moving from the conversations we're having much more into the mainstream about local or community, like economic development or economic support and supporting local or supporting community and like also not wanting to see that sort of at the expense of collective global wellness and uh, and not wanting that as like a xenophobic sort of response or racist response potentially yeah. to, to China, that sort of thing. It's really great to see increasing emphasis and understanding of local. I mean, here we're thinking a lot more. like we're an agricultural heartland, but like we don't have at all the capability to support our own food needs. Mm-hmm. So, seeing a, a conversation much more about food security and supply chain and supporting local, and I think that's really great, but not at the expense of sort of potential xenophobic or racist understandings of the rest of the world so that's I think a balance there to understand we're not so much in crisis mode and crisis response but really appreciate the the time to uh talk about our work here